Good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Gentry. I know that I haven't met most of you, but uh, my wife and I are members here. We have a three-year-old, almost three-year-old son downstairs having fun, I'm sure. Uh, but I have the opportunity to serve as a Navy chaplain here at Lejeune. I'm the chaplain for the 2nd Medical and 2nd Dental Battalion. So I'm uh, privileged to preach this morning and join us in this journey on the book of Philippians. Uh, so we're, we're diving into the second sermon in this series. So imagine with me for a moment that you are a faithful follower of God and are ready to do whatever it takes. Uh, I hope that's true, and I, I'm going to assume that that's true for most of us in this room. And when God calls you to do something, you are ready to go. Now, I want you to put yourself in several scenarios here. Put yourself in the position of having your son tied to a wooden altar with a knife in your hand over him. Put yourself in the position of a man who has literally lost almost everything in his life, his family, his livelihood, and almost his health. Put yourself in the position of a man who ran from God, is on a boat, gets thrown overboard, and is swallowed by a giant fish and stuck there for three days. And put yourself in a position of looking at your son who had just been beaten and whipped and crucified on a cross. And, and thinking maybe that the thought, if you're in those positions, how can this at all be a part of God's plan, right? How, how can this do anything to serve God's purpose. And, and I think that the passage we're going to look at this morning, as you see on the screen, is the same question we need to ask ourselves. Are we willing for God to use our circumstances to achieve His plan? So if you haven't already turned there, you'll see Philippians 1, chapter 12, verses through 26, that is what we're going to look at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in front of you in the pews, and that's actually going to be on page 921 in those ESVs. I will let you know up front, I am going to be preaching from the New American Standard, so it might differ a little, but it is uh, very similar in the text that is presented. And today, the sermon we're going to look at here is, as I've entitled it, Whatever It Takes. Whatever It Takes. And we're going to see in this passage very shortly that Paul challenge the Philippians to know that God could use any circumstance to advance the gospel. And, and the beautiful thing for us here in 2021 in Jacksonville, North Carolina, is this is the same thing that's true for us. That as Christians, we must know that God will use any circumstance in our life to advance the gospel. And up front, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what my purpose here this morning is for our, this time. I want Christians in this room to know that both good and bad circumstances in our lives are often used by God to bring about advancement in the gospel. Before we dive into this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. We thank you that we have the opportunity to open up your word. Lord, we know that your word does not return void, and it will accomplish everything that you send it out for. So first and foremost, God, we ask that you would speak to us. We pray as the psalmist prayed, open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We ask this, and we praise you in advance for what you're going to do. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to take this message and apply it to our lives. We thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So as we dive into this passage, notice I want us to look at two truths this morning regarding the gospel. Notice first that the gospel allows us to rejoice no matter our circumstances. And we'll see here in verses 12 through 18 this truth. Read along with me in the first few verses here. It says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Right, so we've already seen Scott last week, he preached the first message here in those first 11 verses, and now Paul is turning to begin to kind of tell you, hey, this is what's going on, and I'm going to give a quick blurb about my own circumstances. What were Paul's circumstances? If you know anything about this book and Paul's situation, Paul is sitting in prison. He's in Rome. He's been under house arrest. And in this day, house arrest is similar. They were chained to a guard 24-7. And he, he was ultimately arrested for preaching the gospel, which we'll talk about here in a second. So how, look what it says there. He says, hey, my, my imprisonment here has turned out for greater progress of the gospel. Well, how, how can that be, Paul? How can your imprisonment be a good thing? How can the gospel advance? Well, this idea of progress, or in the, if you're looking at the ESV, it would say advance the gospel. It's the idea of moving ahead against obstacles. Think of it this way. For those of you here in the military, you'll get this idea. Think of it as, say, it's some Marines moving slowly through and, and with, great pro, or sorry, with great trepidation and great effort to create a path through a, a crowded jungle, a dense jungle. It's the same idea that Paul is going through and sharing the gospel. There's some, there's some struggle to this. So Paul, he was so focused on the gospel that he knew that even in prison and all the obstacles that he had already gone through, if you're familiar with his situation, shipwreck, he, he was beaten, left for dead, all these different things that he has gone through. And he knew that even in prison that this would be the case, that the gospel would still advance, that God was going to literally use his time in prison to advance the gospel. And that's, that's a crazy idea for us because we're thinking, like, how in the world? You're, you're out here faithfully preaching the gospel, and now you're in prison. How can that still happen? Well, we'll look at that here in a second. And, and think about this. When I was reading this passage, it reminded me even how Joseph responded to his imprisonment. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph back in the book of Genesis, you'll know that his own brothers, right, sold him into slavery. He was eventually sold into the house of Potiphar to serve, and he did it very well. Now, ultimately, his Potiphar's wife would accuse him of something he didn't do. He would be thrown into prison and would spend almost two years in prison. And then eventually he would interpret a dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would put him second in command, and he would be in charge of getting all the different things ready for the, the surplus that was about to happen and then the ultimate famine that would come. 
But listen to what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 45, verses 8, about his in situation. He said, Now therefore, it was not you, talking to his brothers, who sent me here, but God. And he has made of me a father to Pharaoh, and the Lord of his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then, after his father had died, after they had brought them back to Egypt, he then said this to his brothers. He said in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Joseph had this beautiful attitude about his circumstances, right? He could have complained. He could have done this. And this is the way even Paul is thinking. He's like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, this is not a good situation. Maybe I would have preferred something else. But at the end of the day, I know that my imprisonment is for the goodness of the gospel, for the glory of God. And look at verse 13. He continues on in his passage and says, My imprisonment in the cause of Christ. And Paul understood, as long as with everyone else there in in Rome and even the Philippians, that his imprisonment was not because he did something wrong. It was simply for preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And now here, here we come to a familiar term for us. He says that the gospel is being well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Right? We're familiar with that term here, Praetorian at this church. And so we see here, okay, well, what is the Praetorian Guard? Well, essentially, the Praetorian Guard was a group of elite Roman soldiers. They, were, they would serve anywhere from 12 to 16 years, and they were tasked with guarding the emperor and his family and other important citizens. So this is the group of men that Paul had the opportunity to preach to, to teach and hear. Well, how, how did that come about? Well, Paul, like I said in the beginning, he was under house arrest. So it wasn't just a prison cell and he couldn't have any visitors. He was thrown, you know, some food every morning. No, he had the ability to have people in. And we see that in Acts chapter 28. He says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all unopenness unhindered. So think about that. That's, that's amazing. Paul, sitting in his own rented quarters, has the ability for people to come in and out and to preach and teach the gospel in, in Roman imprisonment. Now, Paul, remember, I said he was, he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Typically, they would switch those guards out every four hours. So think about all those guards for over two years that heard the teachings and preachings of Paul. So at the end of the day, if we look at it now, it's like, wait a minute. Paul has an amazing opportunity to share the good news of how his life has been transformed. So we now begin to see that his situation is not as bad as it looks. And as I was kind of studying for this and reading, uh, I I found this beautiful um, kind of description of what this could have possibly been like. Listen to what uh, one biblical scholar so beautifully paints. He says, and I quote, At times the hired room would be thronged with people to whom the apostles spoke words of life, and after they withdrew, the sentry or the guard would sit beside him, filled with many questions as to the meaning of the words which this strange prisoner spoke. At other times, when all had gone, and especially at night, when the moonlit shone on the distant slopes, soldier and apostle would be left to talk, and in those dark, lonely hours, the apostle would tell soldier after soldier the story of his own proud career in his early life, of his opposition to Christ and his ultimate conversion. 
And he would make it clear that there was a prisoner, not for any crime, not because he had raised rebellion or revolt, but because he believed that him whom the Roman soldiers had crucified under Pilate was the Son of God and the Savior of men. Man, just imagine that, what these Roman guards had the opportunity to hear, right? Not a bad day to be guarding a simple prisoner from their perspective. And Paul continues, he says, hey, this, this imprisonment has not only helped me talk to the Praetorian Guard, but it's also everyone else in the surrounding area. So he's been faithful, right, to those people who have come to his house, and he's been preaching the gospel, and they've been hearing it. He continues in verse 14, he says that most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Well, why did they have more courage? Do they need more courage? Well, if you remember, Philippians, if we were to study it, it was written from Rome. And during this time, Nero, emperor, was, he was the one in charge. And if you know anything about Nero, he was vicious. He, he, was, he would kill Christians. He would have them murdered. Uh, it, it was just a bad thing for the church in this time. So, of course, the church in this time was kind of looked on with some suspicion. So there was some trepidation that the, the believers in Rome may have had. But think about it. They saw what God was doing in his situation and in prison, and they're like, wait a minute. Paul's doing some, some amazing things, sitting in under house arrest. How can we not have the courage and the boldness to also go share the gospel? It's just like the church did in Acts chapter 4. Even in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it. He says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Now they were emboldened to speak the word of God without fear. Not because they didn't have anything to fear, but because they were trusting God no matter what happened. So then he continues on in his story. He says, hey, wait a minute. Now some are to be sure are preaching Christ from envy and strife. And some are doing it out of love. Well, what's the difference here? Why, why does he mention these two people? Who are these people that he's talking about? Well, ultimately, they're not false teachers. Uh, if, we, if you've read any of other Paul's letters, you know that he has some harsh words for those who are not teaching God's word faithfully. And what he is getting at here is that these are fellow Christians. They're preaching the gospel, but they're preaching out of jealousy. Their message is right, but their motives are completely wrong. And then you have the other group. They are preaching from right motives and out of love. They have seen that now no longer can Paul preach out in public like he used to, but they can preach and take up the mantle that he has left behind and preach in public. And they are preaching out of genuine love for Paul and the work he, had, he has already done. And look at it. He continues talking about this group in verse 16. He says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What are these people doing? Why were they doing this? Well, they understood that Paul had a mission, right? If we were to go and take the time to look at Paul's time on his road to the Damascus, his kind of conversion process in that time, he knows that he was appointed to be a person who went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And they understood this. They knew that now because Paul was in prison, he had the opportunity to defend the gospel. He would eventually, as we know, history shows us, go before the emperor and give an account of the gospel. Wow, imagine that. Imagine if one of us had the opportunity to go to the president of the United States and share the gospel with him. 
whoever it may be, right? That's an amazing opportunity that Paul would have never had if he was not in prison. And yes, certainly no one would want to be arrested, right? But at the end of the day, Paul had this opportunity one day to go speak to the most powerful person in, on the world, probably at that time, the Roman emperor. And look at what it says. It says that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. And it's the same idea of, of being appointed for an official task. Whether for those of you who are in the military, having to do duty or defense of a strategic position somewhere out downrange, right? That's the same idea that Paul had been given this task. It wasn't just something he's like, ah, I think I'll do this today. No, he was given this opportunity to defend the gospel before the Roman Empire. And he continues talking about this group of people in verse 17. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Well, what is he saying here? He says, hey, they were trying to cause Paul some serious harm. Right? No, no longer is Paul being able to go out in public and share the good news. No, Paul is stuck in prison. He, he can't have the same impact as he did before, right? No, we see that he has an amazing impact. And their thoughts were like, okay, well, now we can go into the circles and the places that Paul was preaching, and those people will now begin to see, hey, that I'm the person who's sharing the good news, and, and Paul is going to get jealous. Well, no, that's not what Paul does. The opposite is actually true. Listen to what he says in verse 18. It says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So Paul is, is not sitting there in jealousy in, in the jail cell or in his house saying, man, what's the deal, Lord? Like, I'm the guy who was preaching. I was seeing all these people come to know you, and now these guys are doing it? No. What Paul says, hey, no matter what, I'm grateful that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And, of course, Paul wants them to do it with the right motives. But he still rejoices that the gospel is proclaimed. One pastor summed it up very well. He said, whether the gospel was proclaimed by jealous, hurtful preachers or by those who were faithfully and humbly pre preaching the gospel with pure motives, it was accurately proclaimed, it bore fruit, and Paul could only rejoice. And Paul knew that even in the midst of selfish motives or even ill will from other people, that God would achieve his purpose. He would do that. He, he knew no matter what his circumstances were, that God would accomplish what he had sent it out for. Think about it this way. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 19, I think gives a beautiful perspective on how we as followers of Jesus Christ can respond to the things that maybe go wrong in our life. Sorry. Listen to what it says. The, the writer of Habakkuk says it this way. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Man, that's a pretty bad picture, right, of the circumstances that the writer of Habakkuk is, is talking about. He's saying, wait, I have no food. I have no way to get food. I have no way to do anything. What would our response probably be in that situation? It would probably say, oh, man, my life is not good. What do I do? I need to go find a new job. I need to go find a new field. But listen to what the writer says. Even in the midst of all these circumstances, he says, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet 
and makes me walk on in high places. Even Job, right? We talked about him earlier in my opening illustration. Job, he lost everything, everything. He lost his family, he lost his livelihood, and almost to the point of death. And listen to what he said in Job 1, 20, 21. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. Now, what would you expect someone to say after that? And he mourned. He wept. He wanted his life to end. Now listen to what he said. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, which was an outward sign of mourning, and fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so even in the midst of their circumstances, they were able to rejoice in the Lord. Paul was doing as James wrote in James 1.4, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And so it's, it's the only thing that this is possible for us to react to this way is because of the gospel. And Paul knew that. He knew that because of his imprisonment, because of his circumstances, that the gospel was going forward, that the gospel was being advanced. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of this and, and someone doing that in the midst of their circumstances that maybe were less than were less than better was my father actually. Uh, several years ago, when I was in seminary, my father on New Year's Eve had a heart attack. And my mom called me at the time he was pastoring he, down in St. Mary's, Georgia, which is near Jacksonville, Florida, on the state line there, Georgia and Florida, and they were going down to Jacksonville to the hospital. And, and my mom told me later on that during that time, after having a heart attack, thankfully everything was okay. They did put a stent in, but he in the hospital was sharing his faith with the nurses in the hospital. And none of us would probably ever want to have a heart attack, right? None of us. We would probably say, no, no thanks, if that was the choice we had that day. But it put my father in a position where he could share his faith with one of his nurses. And I don't know if if they came to know Christ or not. But I think it's a beautiful example is that because of the gospel, no matter what our circumstances are, God will use them. He can use them to advance the gospel. So now that we've looked at how the gospel allows us to rejoice no matter our circumstance, consider the second truth that Paul shares with us in verses 18 through 26, that the gospel allows us to rejoice in life or death. The gospel allows us to rejoice in life or death. And look at verse 18 there. We'll pick up and finish reading the passage here. It says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, and that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me is to live, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, This will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to part and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you. Again, 
And we see that Paul continues on rejoicing there in verse 18. They kind of separate those sections there, but we see his, his attention is now turning to the hopeful outcome of his imprisonment. And at the time, right, Paul's focus, his singular focus, is on Christ, right? Nothing else matters to him. No matter what happens to him, he's going to continue to remain focused on Christ. And at the time of his writing, he didn't necessarily know the outcome of his trial. He didn't know if it was going to end in death, he was going to stay in prison the rest of his life, or he would be free. But look at what the passage says in verse 19. It says that he knows that this will turn out for my deliverance. But wait a minute, you just said he didn't know. Well, what he knows with a certainty is that no matter what, that God will bring deliverance. In our mindset, right, deliverance means healing or deliverance from the situation that we're in, right? We, we so get focused on it, myself included, that if someone doesn't get healed from their sickness and they die, well, God failed to deliver them. No. No, what Paul is saying here is that either life or death works for me. He believes that God will vindicate him in some way. And this actually does allude back again to Job. If we were to look at the, the uh, Greek version of Job, you would really see this. But it says, though, in Job 13, 15, 16, listen to what Job says again. He says, though he slay me, though he kill me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. So Job, even in his dark situation that probably none of us have ever faced, Job's trust and faithfulness to God was so sound that he believed that God would restore everything to him if he so chose to, and which we do know that he does. But he also trusted God that even if he finally took it even further and finally took his life, that God still would be faithful. God would still, tr he could put his trust in him. And Paul understood this same concept. He knew that no matter the outcome of his trial, that God would faithfully deliver him. And he also knew that the prayers of the Philippians were helping in that. And we know that prayer is so important, that God does work through prayer. He also knew that the work of the Holy Spirit would be the only way that his needs would be provided, that God is going to take care of everything that's going on in his life, whether that's getting out of prison or going further on down that journey. And what we're seeing here is that ultimately Paul's joy was not in a physical deliverance from prison. Paul's ultimate joy was yielding to the plans that God had for him, whatever it may be, life or death. And you can see that in verse 20. He said, according to my earnest expectation and hope, so what we're seeing here is that this is not Paul's wishful thinking. He's like, man, I hope I get out of prison tomorrow, or hope, I hope it doesn't rain. No, he's saying, I know for certain, without a shadow of a doubt, that my hope is grounded in the Lord, no matter my circumstances. And I think those are some beautiful songs that we sing because they really get at that, that it's not about what's going on outside or inside. It's about what God is doing in our lives. And he also continues to know that he says, hey, I, I don't believe I'm going to be put to shame here but he expects to trust in Christ. So in that moment when he would have to give an account of what he believed, he, he understood that God was going to be faithful to him. Uh, he, he, he had full confidence in Jesus, whether it was by life or it was by death. Look at verse 21 with me. It's one of the most popular verses we know probably in the New Testament. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if we were to open up the the Greek passage here, we would truly see that this is actually, there's no verb in this passage. 
There's zero verbs in this, this passage in the original language. So it would literally read, to live Christ, to die gain. And, and the question I would want us to ask, myself included, is, is would we put that same answer in that spot, to live blank? To live promotion, to live whatever, right? At the end of the day, are we able to put the same word that Paul put there, to live Christ? And that's ultimately what Paul is about. He is not wanting death for death's sakes. No, he, he understands to live means that he still can do the ministry that God has called him to do. But he also knows that if he dies, he will be with the Lord and his faith will finally be made sight. We need to pray for that day when our faith may be made sight. As Christians, right, we don't have to fear death. I, I kind of joke sometimes and I tell people, you know, you know, it's when it's my time to die, it's my time to die. I'm not looking for death, but if, God forbid, I, I were to die on the way home today, well, it's no loss for me. Yes, it would be a loss for my family. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be with the Lord. And that's a good thing. We're, we don't look for death, but when it's our time, it's our time. And we get to be with the Lord. We know as Christians, we don't have to fear death. Right? Christ paid the penalty of death for us, the penalty of sin. And he walked through the valley of death through, for us. It's a momentary thing and a journey into a life. And as for Christians, we know that, that death is not the end. Death is actually the beginning, right? We know that when we die, we begin eternal life. Paul wrote in Romans, he said, Romans 14, 8, For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Paul understands that because of the gospel, either way, in life or death, God will be magnified. He will be glorified in, no matter what. And in verse 22, he says, hey, I understand that if I live on, that means more opportunities to reap the harvest that God has set before him. And he is. He's, he's faced with the dilemma. He's like, all right, well, I don't know if I want to do this or this. He doesn't know, right, the outcome of what's going to happen and even what God has in store for his ministry. But he does know that no matter what, the gospel is going to be advanced. He knows that if God frees him from prison and allows him to live, God will still be glorified. And he knows that if he goes on and ends up in death, that God will still be glorified. And his circumstances did not determine his joy. So we, we see here in verses 23 and 24 that he is balancing that decision. And he knows he's in a hard position. Well, what do I do? What, what's the thing? And we, we know that he doesn't necessarily have to face that immediately in this passage. But he knows that the goal for all Christians is to depart and be with Christ. He said it in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are of good courage. I say, and I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He's weighing both options now. He understands that, yes, I would love to depart and be with the Lord. I would love to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who redeemed me from my sins. But he knows at the end of the day that it is better to stay for the sake of others. He, he says it right there. He says, hey, you know what? I'm convinced that I will remain and continue with you. He even, even during his imprisonment, Paul is thinking of how he can serve others. Honestly, I'm not sure I would have the same reaction, <laughs> right? I'd be like, all right, what's the deal, Lord? Why am I stuck here in prison? No one's coming to see me. No one's sending me, whatever. No, Paul is continuing to say, hey, I'm going to stay around longer so I can help you grow in your faith. 
He understands that his race has not fully been run, and he has more work to do. Verses 25 and 26, we see that Paul realizes that remaining here, or remaining on this earth, is the best course of option. Why? Well, he wants to continue to help them grow in their faith. He wants them believers to continue to learn, to grow and walk with Christ. At the end of the day, he's beginning to put their needs before of his wants. He's willing to sacrifice his desire to be present with the Lord in order to stay on earth to help them grow in their faith. He understands that remaining on earth at this time brings God the most glory for his ministry. And so Paul understands that life is not about him. It's, not, it's, it's all about Jesus. I think we all know this, but I want to remind us that at the end of the day, this book is not about us. It's really not. Church is not about us. It's about Jesus. And so this is what Paul is making sure the Philippians know when he writes this letter. Hey, it's not about me. Yeah, I'm sharing my circumstances, but at the end of the day, it's about God. It's about the gospel. And so Paul knows that at there you see, he's like, okay, so that your proud confidence me, in verse 26, may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul's not saying, hey, this is about me. I want you to know about me. Well, yes, he's sharing his, his experiences, but he's understanding that God was using Paul to make them more like Jesus. And that's our goal. Like, as Christians, we need to be walking alongside of other believers, discipling them, showing, hey, let's push them along towards one another to make them more like Jesus. And he knows here that whether or not he saw them again, that his focus was ultimately Jesus. His, his, he wanted to, them to know that it is all about Jesus. And Paul, in this passage, he has genuinely shown us two truths in this passage. First, the, that the gospel allows us to rejoice no matter our circumstances. Secondly, that the gospel allows us to rejoice in life or death. Now, my question for us is, okay, that's great. Jonathan, that's good that you share all that, but so how do we apply this to our lives? Well, I have several ways I believe we can apply this message to our lives this morning. I think the first place we have to start is to trust in the Lord's sovereignty. To know that no matter what, that God is in control of our circumstances. That it's not about being happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's not what this book teaches. There's a lot of passages out there that say that, and it's not about that. At the end of the day, it's understanding that no matter what position God puts us in in life, that he's going to use that some way, we don't always know how, right, to bring about the gospel. Long story short, I was an associate pastor at a church in North Carolina, and we left there in a way that we didn't expect to leave there. And um, looking back on that, it was a hard experience for my wife and I. And we're like, okay, Lord, what's the deal? What's going on? Why did you take us through that experience? Well, now I can look back and say, well, I learned some things, but also it gave me the, the ministry experience that I needed to be a Navy chaplain. And, and so it, sometimes you're like, wait a minute, I don't want to go through this situation, Lord. Why me, right? The quintessential why me question. And so I think what we need to do is start there and say, hey, whatever it is, Lord, I'm going to trust that the circumstances you have put me in in life, I can walk through them with you. So first, trust in the Lord's sovereignty. Secondly, know and preach the gospel to yourself. Wait, what? What did you say there? I'll say it again. Know and preach the gospel to yourself. You're probably thinking, why didn't you say know and preach the gospel to others? That's the third point, so hold on. Okay. First, I think the big thing for us as Christians is we often forget that the gospel is for us too. 
right? We know that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, but we, we think, okay, that's good. I learned that the day I came to know Christ, but at the end of the day, that's all I need to remember. No, no, no. If anything, we need to know and preach the gospel ourselves every single day, every single day. So we need to know what the gospel is, but we also need to continue to remind ourselves of what God has done in our own lives. And third, like I just said, know and preach the gospel to others. Right? This is what Paul was doing. He was talking to the Praetorian Guard. He was talking to those who came to his house. And for us, this is not just a job for pastors, elders, any of the leaders in the church. This is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your job is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. God told us that, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? So we're called to this process of evangelism. So we need to know it and preach the gospel to others. And then the last one is to pursue Christ with your life. Make sure that there is nothing else in front of you except for the cross and the and Christ, because everything else is going to fall away one day. Right? And this is what Paul's goal was. He knew that if God took him from this earth, that at the end of the day it was all about Christ. So make sure that you pursue Christ with your life. I do have one more point. I wasn't lying to you, but it's for a certain group of people in this room. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there's an application for you too. It's to repent and repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. And I think if you've been at this church long enough or this is your first time ever stepping in the foot of this church, know that, uh, that it is all about the gospel, that the gospel changes everything in your life. So if you haven't made that decision, you need to. Why not? And I would encourage you to come talk to me or one of the pastors here, Brian, or any of the others that are here today, and, and understand that, one, you're a sinner, that you're in need of a Savior. Right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my prayer is if you've never done that, why not? Today is the day of salvation. So I would encourage you, if you haven't done that, come talk to me or somebody else that you know who could really share the gospel with you and you can repent and believe in the gospel today. So my question for us is, is are, we in, are we willing to know that whatever our circumstances are, that we can do whatever it takes in seeing God advance the gospel in our lives? Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your good news. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel. And we thank you that at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I do pray that we would understand that in the moments of life where we want to question why me or, or what did I do to deserve this, that at the end of the day, uh, we deserve an eternity separated from you. But you extended your grace and your mercy that we may have the gospel, that you may change our lives and forgive us of all of our sins. And we know that we can one day have a home with you called heaven. So God, I just pray for every person in this room that no matter what the situation that they're in, whether it's good from their perspective or horrible from their perspective, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would begin to reveal and show how the, that you are working in their lives to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. We praise you. We pray that we would worship you. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper in a few moments, that we would be reminded of the price that you paid on the cross, that you shed your blood for us, that your body was whipped and beaten and bruised for us so that we may have eternal life and have forgiveness of our sins. So God, we thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.